0: Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo, and I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is David A. McNeil, author, communications professor, and a formerly correspondent for The Economist, The Independent, and The Irish Times, where he got his start reviewing the River Shannon, Loch Earn cruise routes. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, I've never been on that cruise, but it sounds very slow. On this week's show, a kawabune is a Japanese vessel made of wood. Kawa means river and fune means boat. But it's also a way of thinking about man's spiritual connection with nature, a way of finding joy in the day-to-day of water-based transportation, and a reason to ask ourselves, and David, deeper questions about why there's so much Orientalist bullshit in Western reporting on mundane Japanese stuff. Plus, ali has got your weekly River Cruise recommendation. Ali. Yes, Bobby, I would
1: part ways with your view that that is a mundane word. Uh, This week's recommendation, Bobby, uh, is based around the fact that there has never been a better time to recommend the annual April Fool's Day Dotonbori Cruise that's run by an Osaka-based collective of international prank artists. Now, this year they've added an extra three trips to try and earn as much money as possible this year in order to pay off the compensatory damages they're liable for after their highly
0: successful Suez Canal prank last week. Also, everything continues to look good on the Olympic preparation front. All of the Tokyo area river cruise boats that are scheduled to participate in the opening ceremony waterway parade have been fully sanitized from stem to stern. And COVID-19 infections among the crew have been standing at zero ever since they stopped conducting PCR tests. Later in the show, we'll take a look at the exact number of international COVID variants we can expect to see present in the summer games. But first, Soap Talk. Hey Brian, you got anything for soap talk this week?
1: No. It has occurred to me that not every week we explain to our guest what soap talk means. And it's and there might now be listeners yes. that don't know what soap talk mean. And it's always embarrassing when I have to explain, "Oh yeah, Bobby bullied me" because I got it wrong once, <laughs> and now it's become a thing. <laughs> you uh, were in on the joke. Yeah, but also but also what I found funny this week was when I was explaining to David, "Oh yes, we have our soap talk section." And I said it so naturally now as if like that's now part of the English lexicon I was almost offended when David went oh so the sausage talk or whatever whatever you got it wrong uh, I was like how dare you, are you? what are you stupid uh, obviously it's soap
0: talk that's what you say in english that is a better description of what it originated as <laughs> <laughs> exactly so so this originated in a blooper right Yeah.
2: in a hmm. slip of the tongue you made you made a mistake and it was second supposed to say
1: seken. I,
0: I was supposed to say second banashi but I said Banashi,
1: and Bobby's going to say, oh, they sound the same.
0: <laughs> well, these are really common uh, slips of the tongue because there are so many similar sounding words in Japanese. And David, you and Ali have both written about these kinds of slips of the tongue. You, in the form of a great piece for the Japan Times, Ali in the form of uh, jokes of debatable quality. Um, let's talk about your piece to start. And let's not have that debate. If we must. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah well i mean what i did was so i was uh one day i was uh, trying to put up a curtain uh in my apartment and i used the word uh negi instead of neji uh-huh. uh you guys being fluent japanese speakers will know that i had uh it, instead of saying i had tried to put in a with a nail i had used uh, a spring on right right <laughs> and my wife my wife doubled over with laughter and i i just realized that i've The whole time I've been in Japan, I've been making people laugh with my Japanese. Mm. So I might as well make some money out of it. So I I wrote an article and then I contacted all my journalist friends and asked them, can you give me your best bloopers? Uh, And uh, they sent them in kindly. So that's really what the article is about. Um, I I feel like I um, probably took first prize because I was on a radio Mm. show in 2000. Uh, It was a live radio show. We were interviewing... A woman who was an amateur historian she was in her 60s and my job was my my Japanese wife at the time was the lead anchor my job was to be the kind of gaijin foil to be the comic relief and to just tag along Um, So what I said was, at one point, which means, so you Mm. gave up your teaching job to become a prostitute. (laughs) And the whole studio kind of froze. And I remember the director who was sitting on the other side of this big mirror, he kind of jumped out of his seat like he'd been Uh shocked. So, know like literally a foot off his chair so i so i realized i'd done something wrong but i didn't know what it was so then i said it really slowly again <laughs> so you stopped being a teacher and you became a prostitute <laughs> and my wife who is really used to my bloopers kind of said <laughs> right? like, do you mean a housewife and i said oh yeah yeah Well, at that point the damage <laughs> yeah gone,
1: you know at that point you should have just doubled down why not both <laughs>
2: <laughs> or or run out of the studio and never never gone back you know one
0: of my favorite ones and this is another one that i did on air and i got in a lot of trouble for it um, people always want to want to ask about international marriages and the differences between culture between you know a uh, uh, western partner and their japanese partner and somebody was asking me about the differences the no chigai, the cultural differences between myself mm-hmm. and my wife. And one of my go-to responses is always that, you know, we we have a lot of differences that I would consider more gender differences. Like, that's where a lot of our issues come from. And I wanted to talk about a really benign one and say that she's cold all the time. And the word for somebody who's cold all the time is hieisho. Hie meaning to, to, like, to cool down. <laughs> hieisho. And uh-huh. this is not that similar of a Japanese word, but the intonation always makes me confused the two of them. I confused it with jiheisho, which is autism. <laughs> and so what I said in the studio was uh, was about how it was more about the difference between men and women. You know, my wife was really autistic and she was always stealing my blanket at night. But when I think about it, you know, that's not a cultural thing. My ex-girlfriend was autistic and used to steal my blanket too. And most of the women <laughs> I know seem pretty autistic to me. And, oh man! And I could see everybody, wow. because the Japanese person on the other end of this, uh, often has no idea where the mistake is coming from. Where the mistake is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right, yeah.
2: So so people say these things to you and then you... Um, you the other thing that was interesting in Japan is people don't... Sometimes, they because they don't want to offend you, they don't say, it, eh, you know, right. what are you talking about? You obviously made a mistake. They'll just go ah, saw this guy another hotel, right? <laughs> assuming that, you, you know, assuming right, that you right, really, right, your wife right, really right. is autistic, right. right?
1: So you're, you're in that hardware store trying to hammer that leak in with a carrot. It's like, just leave him. He'll, he'll learn for himself. Well, that's the great thing
2: about Japan. People will say, well, whatever, you know. Yeah, that, you do that's you. It's up to you. You do you. Well, talking
1: about you do you, we, we ought to uh, talk about the listeners, which have done them by... Very kindly supporting the show by buying us coffees. Natasha once again has bought us a coffee. Uh, It's becoming a bit of a routine. If only she would turn that routine into a regular subscription uh, as a member. Uh, But uh, Natasha, thanks very much. Glad to hear you're enjoying the show. And also, AD underscore M underscore U bought us five coffees uh, saying, Great podcast, full stop. Then continuing with, But I wish you'd let your guests speak more. The worst is when you interrupt them for a cheap joke, disrupting their flow. And then he gives a transcript, which is guest, colon, my interesting opinion, colon, uh Ollie, cheap joke, boom, guest, ha ha ha. Bobby, this is what I think, don't you? Question mark, guest, especially if Japanese, yes. <laughs> Bobby, do you want to take this one?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, first of all, I want to say thank you for caring enough about the show to send in your constructive criticism along with a handful of cash.
1: To be honest, I'm pretty sure I caused this because I did say last week you can send in you can say anything you like as long as it's accompanied by money. And so
0: I, I'm kind of glad that worked. It it shows that they care about the show. And I, and I do think that it's actually a totally valid criticism. Um, it's come up before, uh, just between Ollie and I. And I think it's one of the main things that we could improve on in terms of how we host the show. And we don't want to, like, double down on this mistake and make a long thing out of this instead of talking <laughs> to David. So... If you're interested in hearing us talk about this specifically in terms of what our goals are uh, when we put together a guest conversation and what it takes to try to get the balance we're aiming for, we're going to record one and put it out as an extra. So that would be uh, a great extra you could get if you sign up as a monthly member.
1: Yeah, that's $5 a month, early access to the show, bonus bits every week and a free ride on our boat when we can finally afford one
0: but just so uh we can prove that this isn't a weird gimmick uh if you don't feel like subscribing to hear that we will make this specific extra free and and link it to our twitter so you can listen to it
1: for, for, for the first time in the uh show's history adam's twisted our arm to not do some kind of gimmick um i also should thank adam for at least including the guest laughing at my cheat jokes in the transcript that felt great Uh, Anyway, with that, we will, we'll genuinely record that. I think it's going to be interesting, and I think some people uh, might want to hear it. So with that, let's take a look at the news.
0: The Mainichi Shimbun reports, Japanese government employee to be paid compensation for harassment by an official in the anti-harassment department. The harassment in question has been roundly condemned by other Japanese government officials, including almost all of the men in the Ministry of Women's Empowerment. Our own JBRC Press Club correspondents have followed up on the story.
1: Yes, at kumayama100 reports that there seems to have been some understandable confusion on the part of the official, because he had just recently been transferred from the harassment department. And correspondent at PJOMC will be going even further in depth with the release of their book Harasumento, the ancient Japanese art of showing who's boss.
0: If you'd like to join the JBRC Press Club, follow us at at JBRCPod for next week's assignment. David, you recently wrote an article
1: for the Foreign Correspondents' Club of Japan's paper explaining why you think there's yep. so much bullshit written about Japan in the Western media. I'm summarising, I don't think you used that word. And uh, it's funny that just last week the New York Times magazine managed to exoticise and romanticise and orient- orientalize a pot. And uh, this was like widely derided on Twitter, but it seems, it just seems, that derision on Twitter is not enough to make it stop. So... My question to you is: You've covered the history of Western media getting Japan wrong. Is it ever going to stop?
2: Well, not only have I covered the history of the Western media getting it wrong, but I've been part of the problem uh, in the sense that I worked for. Yes. So the first, yeah, it's a twelve-step program, and the first, the first step is recognizing that you have a Mm -hmm. problem, which I have. Uh, So I worked for a British newspaper called The Independent for sixteen years, and a staple of My uh, job, if you like, was a late evening call, actually sometimes as late as we are now, 10 o'clock at night, but usually after the conference in London, uh, an editor would call and he'd say, David, we've seen um, this new geisha movie uh, coming out and we're wondering if you could interview a geisha uh, uh, and could you do it now? Or do it tonight. And I would say, well, do you know how hard it is to get a geisha interview? And they would say, well, just put it together from what you can find on the wires. And those would be quite regular uh, requests, you know, for this kind of hardy perennials. We call them hardy perennials in, in uh, journalistic speak. So geisha, uh, sumo, sexless marriages, <clears throat> um, uh, anything to do really with quirky or weird sex. Um, uh, yakuza of course was another one so and whaling was a regular one in the british media
0: so these are th- these are the things that you said you call them hardy perennials i think now they might be more akin to like searchable keywords
2: yeah i mean if you so they're clickbaits i mean it, and eventually they became clickbaits in the sense that um you know what would happen is if you wrote a story about a sexist marriage or japan's barbaric whaling practices or whatever it was then you could guarantee that that, article would go into the top 10 uh, of the most read articles for that particular day which is why editors would call you up so you know just just to take their position for a minute the editor's position that is uh, they they were uh, you know putting together a newspaper with a very small budget and in in the independence case it was it was always teetering on the verge of bankruptcy Mm. as well uh, basically since it was set up Certainly since I, t- I came to the paper, which is 2001. You've
0: established that it's not your fault. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was my fault. But uh, probably I paid a part. But uh, no, they weren't paying me enough to, to make to make, to make make me part of the bankruptcy problem. But, but what they would try and do is they would try and leaven the mix of war, famine, catastrophe, Donald Trump, whatever it was, you know, all the crap going on in the world with a bit of light relief mm. from Japan or Korea. And I was writing for both countries. And that meant co- what we call color stories. Um, so y- you you were always sort of asked to pull these things out of the out of the bag, you know. And and sometimes it was really really uh, you know you kind of you balked right because the stories were so mm. stupid. Like I remember before I came to Japan, there were so many stories in the British press about how cruel Japanese people were to animals, mm. um, and how they mistreated them. And then when I came here. Uh, one of the first things I was asked to do was a 2,000 word feature on how Japanese people are, love animals. And not only do they love them, but they're using animals to replace their desire to have children. So they're stopping having children, they're having dogs and cats. And I was asked to put that together in, in a sort of very short space of time, you know, three or four hours. So you can't even get any interviews, you can't put any context, you can't put any nuance. You just end up saying Japanese people love their pets uh, because they're not having any babies, you know.
1: That, that, that seems like one of these like bingo cards where you've you've managed to check off like three or four you've got like a little hikimo, hikikomori element you've got a cute japan element kawaii mm. yeah
2: and and you know it's interesting because one of the most probably the most trolled I've ever been in my life was when I did an article on AKB48 which of course is a uh, kawaii pop group mm. and and I couldn't I just couldn't resist taking the piss you know out of out of the whole sort of um kawaii phenomenon and you know going to this concert and i was not the oldest person there and 95 percent of the people who were there were were men Mm. right so the whole it just seemed saturated in kind of pedophilia or pedophilia light to me at least and that's the way i wrote it up but the trolling i got was was unbelievable people saying you you know you're dissing japanese culture you, you you don't understand it you don't respect it um uh and and one of the reasons why they said that is because it's very hard in in a you know 700 words 800 words whatever the newspapers give you to to really set up complex issues like that you know you you only kind of touch on the surface um and and you never really get to grips with with uh with you know stuff like pedophilia for example or that element in japanese culture
0: and how common is it for a newspaper to come to you with basically the thesis of the story already and say this is what we're looking for as you just described
2: often is the the answer to that because they've seen the story somewhere else right so they've seen japan's pet boom or they've seen a new geisha movie and of course in 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 the particular instance of the independent it was always middle-aged editors who'd grown up without any experience of japan they'd never been to japan and in some cases or in many cases their only experience of japan was either the war the memory of the war Mm -hmm. right So you had the kind of whole barbaric Japanese syndrome and then you had war comics. I mean, I grew up reading Japanese war comics, you know, all those, the the sturdy British Tommy mowing down, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, lines and lines of Japanese soldiers who would only ever say, Mm -hmm. that was the only thing they ever said, right? So you had that kind of generation and then you had the sort of um, the economic juggernaut which was the dominant narrative in the 80s and 90s. So they carried all that framework in their heads when they commissioned these stories from you.
1: Something that, that really upset me when I, I worked briefly for local Japanese television. And one time I was sent on an assignment where I would randomly speak to people on the street pretending I was a tourist and then seeing how they would react and you know seeing the lev- their level of English. And I remember the first time, the very first thing we shot, I spoke to someone and they responded in fluent English. They were super pleased to meet me. You know, they were that they, they really bought into it they wanted to become my friend and uh i had a great interaction with them and then as soon as they left and they signed the release the director basically said zan nen, which is like what a shame we can't use that Can and, and that was like yeah, my yeah. first uh real world experience of uh being a hammer in search of a nail or rather like having having yeah. the outcome and not being a journalist and it seems that what you're saying yeah. is that The stories aren't guided by foreign journalists picking up information and constructing a story, but rather there's this idea of what Japan needs to be in order for our readers to accept it and to engage with it, and you just need to find enough pieces that that fit that mould. So you're not really being asked to lie, you're just being asked to kind of put your blinkers on.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's both, you know? I think you have all those elements. So uh, let's let's put it this way. If a correspondent is powerful enough, if they have enough uh heft and if they're a staffer then they can argue with a line that the editor has put mm. to them right and they will say well look okay yeah it's true that there are robots in japan but i'm afraid you know that, that article that you saw in the daily mail about robots serving people uh booze or having sex with customers in osaka that's completely wrong that's just false and I, but i will write you a good article on robots mm. right uh you know which might not be as sexy as that it might be all about how robots now run all of japan's factories mm. which is true right so, so I I think it's both. I think uh, you know. I think that the uh, editors come to the journalist, the correspondent on the ground, with a framework for understanding Japan. In some cases, the journalists themselves will arrive with a, a set sort of uh, you know a mindset of how to cover the country. Um, but then, when it clashes with reality, mm. if they're good journalists, they'll change their mindset, right? And they'll argue with the editor. One of the issues I took up in my piece is. The fact that because journalism is collapsing, or old school journalism is collapsing, you know that advertiser supported right. model newspapers and so on, that the industry now is full of uh, people who are stringers, people who are uh, not on contracts and who are just trying to survive. Mm. And in the worst case, not in all cases by any means, but in the worst case cases, they, those people will write whatever needs to be written, right? They'll just write what the editor asked because it, it paid 50 cents a word or whatever it is.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the instances where uh, the reporter fails or the Western media outlet fails. Um, one of the ones yeah. that sticks out to me uh, is a story I heard about from a woman I rented to pretend to be my wife. Uh, it's the family rental business story. This was picked up all over uh western media this company in japan that rented out uh a family this was the new yorker i believe right that's right so what makes this story st- so f- just to be
2: clear about the context it wasn't just the new yorker uh, nhk world uh also did a story mm-hmm. on that uh various other um western and japanese outlets conan did o'brien in did fact, a piece he was on it a st- when he was here conan o'brien did a piece yeah which i actually use to teach about exoticizing mm-hmm. japan and it was also the subject of a movie uh, a documentary movie so but the reason why people have focused on the new yorker is because the new yorker is a prestigious one of the kind of um you know rolls royce of uh, american publications and they spend a lot of time and effort fact-checking and in fact i know the people who wrote this article i know the people who were involved in researching it and there was a lot of you know, time and effort put into sort of getting to the bottom of this phenomenon, which is the rent-a-family industry, right? So the idea is, if you you're going to a wedding, or if you need a friend or a, a wife to stand in for you, that you can rent one, right? Um, and it turns out that the the whole story was kind of undermined because the people who were the sources of the story, the so-called, you know, the actors who were renting, were actually um, related, uh, and they were playing a part not only to the people who that were hiring them, but they were playing a part to the journalist who was writing the story. Right, so essentially the journalist had the wool pulled over over yeah. her eyes. And so
1: you're saying the journalist was was duped. Basically, this wasn't an example of the journalist looking for a story, but rather, you know, is there anything the journalist could have done? I guess is my question. Could even the the best journalist have, have seen through this?
2: Exactly, it's not a question of of the journalist. Deliberately trying to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. It's a question. In this case, particular instance, it's, the journalist was fooled by her sources, which is very hard, you know. To so even the the Japanese fixer in this case, I know, she was suspicious of the story mm-hmm. uh, because it just seemed so weird. But she went ahead with it, right? But I think the bigger issue. This was a piece made by uh, a journalist uh, in a different magazine, The Atlantic, in fact. Um, he said, "Well." In, in, the issue really is why do editors um, and, you know, fact checkers, even at the world's most prestigious uh, publications, drop their guard when it comes to Japan? Mm. That's the issue. Right? Yeah. Like, like why is it that, you know, when you hear a story like you go, really? You know, people are renting families? You know, doesn't that sound weird? So, Elementary so school children are licking accept- eyeballs. Yeah. You, so that's another story, as you know, that ran in the British newspapers, that there was this craze for japanese uh you know school children licking each other's eyeballs uh and the story that went all around the world complete and utter nonsense so why didn't the editor of the telegraph in this case the first publication the british telegraph the first publication that ran that story why didn't they say come on that that's, that's got to be nonsense they just put the story mm. in
1: and is is the answer that if this were the irish doing the eyeball licking thing they'd go Okay, we've re- we've really got to investigate this, but somehow because it's, Don't hear. I don't know, you tell me. Um- they do all kinds of weird things in Ireland.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, but I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm making a joke, but, I, but I, I, think every country has its uh, little sort of cubby holes and its yeah. cultural idiosyncrasies, right? And the Irish are no different, right? But uh, you know, why, why, and, and of course, the Irish have been exoticized or racialized mm-hmm. in the British press as well, yes, right? of course, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's lots of, lots of stories about the, the Irish being thick or the Irish, you know, being, being alcoholics or whatever it is. But then some of it is rooted in reality. But the, I think, you know, if we were just to talk about the Irish case, because there's so much more um, cultural interaction between Ireland and England, right? There's so many more Irish people in England. This, we share the same language. Uh, it's it's much harder to get away with something like that. Japan is um, linguistically, culturally, and so on, quite separate and different from other parts of the world, and I think that's why you you know it's it's easier for journalists to kind of pull the wool over editors' eyes, or it's easier easier for editors to pull the wool over journalists' eyes, right? Um, and the other point sort of to make is. It's a very important point, by the way, is that Japan itself plays up its own exoticism and its own difference, doesn't it? You know, like how many conversations have I had in Japan where somebody says, you know, Japan is unique. Uh, It's got four seasons or, you know, Japanese people have unique, uh, uniquely long guts. or You know, just so many conversations over the years where the Japanese themselves kind of set themselves apart from everybody else, right? Especially older Japanese, not not so much maybe younger Japanese who more in interaction with the world, but... The sort of middle-aged and older cohort they've just been raised on that idea that we are a separate race of people right we are different and i think uh foreign journalists the bad ones at least play up to that you know
1: do you think that times have changed with the proliferation of the internet and the fact that there are lots of other people that can fact check that the role of the journalist 30 years ago doing this kind of information arbitrage is now not as useful because you, you tweet one bit of bullshit and you've you've got an army of people going, well actually, well, actually, well, actually, well, actually. Does that inform the work?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a really, really good point. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by this whole subject myself. I teach it, right, is like what's happening? What is the internet doing to journalism? I think it I think to use an old fashioned word, it's dialectic. It's not not one thing or mm. the other, right? I think as you just said, if you write something that's false now, it's very much harder to get away with it, right? Like when I was starting in journalism, the only comeback that a reader had was to send a letter to the paper and the paper would say, we're not going to print that, right? Then you had all of the comments section, right? The online comments section. And now you've got this vast kind of proliferation of, you know, people on Twitter and so on who can take things apart. And actually, it's quite cruel in some ways because you've sat down, you've had a call from an editor at seven o'clock at night or eight o'clock at night. You put together an article in an hour, Right. And then the article goes out into the world and it's dissected by people who have all the time in the world to spot your mm. mistakes, right? So I, I do think, I'm not going to say that's a good or a bad thing.
1: Sure. Well, I should say in 78 episodes, we've never been fact-checked on any of our River Cruise journalism. So squeaky clean.
0: We stand by it. As far as you know. Uh, <laughs> have you Googled yourself? Uh, Bobby has. Regularly, regularly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
2: you know, you only know how good you are by reading your enemies' comments, right? Yeah.
0: People who don't like you, people who hate you. So even though we do have this kind of like internet fact check machine that kind of uh, makes it a lot easier for the uh, misinformation or the misunderstandings to come to light really, really quickly, we still see this never ending trend for the West to want to orientalize Japan and keep making the same mistakes. Do you think that this says something about the West and what the West wants out of Japan?
2: Well, yeah, I think it says something about the way the West perceives Japan um there is um a sort of a collective memory of japan which certainly for my generation uh is uncomfortably close to um stereotypes about mm. the war about you know the barbaric japanese and i think that it, whaling, for example to take one case is a sort of a uh a stand-in for you know that barbarity right, right? it was a way of writing about mm. japanese exoticism and so on by not writing about it right you could talk about those barbaric japanese killing whales yeah. um So I do think it is partly about that. Um, But I do think also uh, there's other factors involved, right? And one of the factors that you might want to, you know, just think a little bit about is journalism itself as a machine for creating artifacts, Mm -hmm. you know, for creating things that people read, right? Like that's one of the things that was really quite shocking to me because I came to Japan to write about, you know, things that matter, right? But editors... They want to sell the paper for tomorrow and the way that they sell the paper for tomorrow is getting stories that are going to get clicks or reads, you know. And, and that's that's a big part of it is just the whole kind of um, the fact that the media and commercial, especially newspapers are commercial enterprise.
0: And there's a feedback loop there as well, because people are more inclined to click on things and read things that confirm the narrative or the image that they already have in their head. And it's not just the West that does this to Japan. You can also see the way Japan thinks about other countries based on what kind of media they bring in uh, about other countries, for example. I have never been yeah. on a single news broadcast in Japan that hasn't shown footage of a car crash in China.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, you know, <laughs> I did. well, there are a lot of car crashes in yeah. China. I used to live there and it was kind of shocking. But, but I, yeah, I mean, just, you know, the bigger issue is the way that the media frames uh, other parts of the world, frames it in every... And, and as we know, the Japanese media is not immune from... Framing the other other parts of the world in their own particular way, or or just ignoring parts of the world and focusing on other parts, you mm-hmm. know. Like so, over the years, I've been invited on, you know, shows in Japan, and there's also been a a, a narrative that had already been decided before I'd ever arrived, and um, which I sometimes disagreed with, but I had zero power to influence. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I mean, one example I would use is. The, the Princess Diana was, mar- was murdered by MI5 uh, narrative. I mean, there's been several programs over the years, and I was interviewed on a TV program about that. And I, I spent, you know, the whole program in my really bad Japanese just saying, you know, right mm-hmm. this is a conspiracy theory that it doesn't make any sense. And the only line from what I, my entire interview that was used was, uh, sonani de wa nai. it's not so simple, right? So they just went ahead with their, with their, you know.
0: I was the victim of the exact same kind of treatment. I was once on a show with a Japanese journalist who claimed that Japan invented the hand job and they totally edited out my, no, it did not. (laughs)
1: Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 78 of Japan by River Cruise. Monthly members, your bonus bits are in your Dropbox as always.
0: Thanks to our guest this week, David McNeil. Can we expect to see a return to River Cruise reviews from you in the future?
1: Not River Cruises. No, I hate boats actually.
2: But I'm putting together a book uh, on comparing the Japanese media and the foreign media, which could be quite interesting and could upset a lot of people. So look out for that. And please
0: come back on the show when it comes out. Uh, We will forgive you for your remark about boats. (laughs) Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.